well and that you would bring them home safely. And then, Lord, finally, I lift up our worship teams who are attending the conference and pray that you would bless them, teach them and instruct them, and better prepare them, Lord, for this great ministry of worship. Thank you for Mike and Andy and having them with us tonight and leading us in worship. And just pray, God, that you would bless our team as a whole, we ask. So, Father, we just lift up these requests. I pray for the ones that were unasked for, Lord, that you would meet all of our church exactly where we're at. And, Father, just the end result, you would be seen as our Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. What we're going to be looking at in this last chapter of Lamentations, just keeping in mind that Judah is now in Babylonian captivity. And just with that mindset, what we need to see, because Israel's of the mindset for them, it's the end times. Not the end times as we think of end times, but they're wondering what happened to God's plan, what happened to God's promises. Well, as we look at the book of Revelation, we see Mystery Babylon, and we see how prominent it is during that time of tribulation. And so I've tried to draw some parallels between the book of Lamentations, as Judah has been brought into captivity, and that time that is sure to come in the future when the nations of the world are going to be brought into captivity of the Antichrist as well. And as I've said before, it's very possible that we are ministering to people, we're sharing the gospel with people who are going to be going through the time of tribulation as the rapture can come, as the Lord said, at any moment, at a time when we least expect it. And so since there is the possibility of us ministering to those who are going to be going through the rapture, we need to draw the parallels and we need to see the reality of them because we can so easily depend upon, especially in this country of our might, of our riches, of our intellect, whatever it is that man may depend upon and who's able to do anything to the United States, Israel had that same mindset and great was their fall and great will be our fall as well. So here in this last chapter, Israel has found themselves in the midst of their sin, coming to an understanding of the things that they have done and the reason that they are in the place that they are in is through, well, it's through their own fault. And really, you must consider and even bring it into our lives as born-again believers. What happens when you find yourself stewing in the quagmire of the effects of your sin? Understanding that the situation that you're dealing with, the things that you're going through are because you have turned your heart away from the Lord. We've even prayed tonight for some people that have walked away from the Lord, going through some very serious health concerns. As we saw last Sunday, doesn't mean that the concerns aren't going to be there. Yeah, they do come into all of our lives, but as we're with the Lord, we have that comfort and peace just as we sang as we go through that storm, understanding that God is there with us. And so all that is left of Judah at this point is, well, they've all become just as widows and orphans the most helpless of the helpless. It's not that there are just widows and orphans left, but even the men that are left are as helpless as a widow and orphan would be. Many times in the scriptures, they are used as the helpless of helpless. Basic necessities during this time of lamentation, as we see in the future during Revelation, basic necessities are hard to come by and are worth their weight in silver. And those who have formally harassed them now are their conquerors and they're subjected to them. There was a time when God's face had shone richly upon Israel. As we study through First and Second Samuel and the Kings and Chronicles, we see those times when the Lord blessed them and they were the strongest nation in the known world of their day. 
And so God's face shone upon them. That means they were receptive of the blessings of God. They were the conquerors, again, of the known world. Their riches were bountiful. It's believed that Solomon was the richest man who ever existed. And they even had more than they needed. But then there was the warnings, and they chose to ignore the warnings as, for some reason, the nations that they would defeat, they started worshiping their gods. And again, you have to see that picture here. These gods, false gods, gods that we know don't really even exist. But nonetheless, if they truly were gods, they couldn't do anything for the people Israel defeated. How could they do anything for Israel, especially when the true God has done so much? We can look back at the history of this nation and see how God has shown his face upon us. And God has blessed us bountifully but now we become a nation that is turning our face from him. And in the book of Revelations, in the first two chapters, there's the warnings to the churches that exist during that time. Historical churches, types of churches, but literal churches as well. And that church at Ephesus, he's told, nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Remember the relationship that we used to have, but we have no more. And what does he tell them to do? There's that word once again. Repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless, and he repeats the word, unless you repent. Now, last time we met in this study, we looked at being sorry versus being repentant. Tonight, we're going to take it a little bit further as far as repentance. It's going to be a bit of a topical study on that, although we will get into the text of Lamentations chapter 5, because there does seem to be a spirit of repentance from Judah at this time, or at least as we get towards the end of the chapter. But it's the lack of repentance that is the precursor to judgment. The worst punishment of all is to know that it's your own fault. We're told in the book of Romans, chapter 3, verse 19, when man stands before a holy God for the purpose of judgment, you know, apart from Christ, it says every mouth is going to be stopped. That means all those who stand before him will realize their guilt before the holy God, but also that God offered a way out, repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And so during the time of tribulation, we will see true groups of people that are pulled from those who are left behind. So during the end times, before the tribulation, you're going to have the rapture of the church. So for a period of time, that during the rapture of the church, right after, I guess I should say, the rapture of the church, there's not going to be one born-again believer on this planet. Everybody who is a born-again believer is going to be raptured. Now, I would imagine as people start disappearing, it's going to cause people to be thinking... They're going to come to the realization, especially those who had heard the gospel, probably those who have sat in church services and were undercover, well, I shouldn't say undercover believers because they weren't believers at all, but pretend believers as they've heard the message and understand the concept, they realize the truthfulness of God's word, and people start coming to a saving knowledge of Christ. So during that time of tribulation, you will see the repentant. And we see this in the book of Revelation. In chapter 14, verse 6, it says, Apostle John writes, Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. John the Baptist came preaching a doctrine of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. God desires for all men to be saved. So that tells me that the purpose of this gospel going out as the same purpose 
whenever the gospel goes out, it's so that people would get saved, get right with him. They would repent and come to Christ. In Revelation chapter 14, verse 13, Then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Write, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord for now on, Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. So what that's telling me as well is that people are going to get saved during that time of tribulation. Because again, right at the rapture, not one born-again believer on this planet. But then in Revelation chapter 14, verse 13, it starts speaking of those who die in the Lord, dying in faith in Jesus Christ. So these are people that during the time of tribulation heard the gospel, repented of their sins, came to Christ, and are saved. But we also see the antithesis of this in the unrepentant. In Revelation chapter 16, verse 9, And men were scorched with great heat, and they blasphemed the name of God, who has power over these plagues, and they did not repent and give him the glory. In chapter 16, verse 11, they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores and did not repent of their deeds. Now, the only reason it would say that they did not repent is because they could have repented. They could have repented of their sins and gotten right with God. But you see the hardness of the human heart at that time is God is bringing this this tribulation upon them, and as God's bringing the tribulation upon them, he's got to be giving them the knowledge that there's the opportunity of repentance. Because how would they know to repent? God would not hold their lack of repentance against them unless they realize the opportunity. But their hearts, their hearts are so hard that they refuse even then the grace of judgment. What are they choosing? Instead of choosing the grace of God, They're choosing the judgment of God, and they're receiving of it in spades. Repentance, repentance has always been a chief component of God's plan. Jesus, at the beginning of his ministry, in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, it says, From that time Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And I'll repeat it again. John the Baptist, he preached the doctrine of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Unfortunately, so many have left that element out of the salvation process. So many times we hear you have to have Jesus in your heart. So many times it's come to Christ without really explaining those terms and what is necessary. There, you have to come to the knowledge of your sinful state. You have to be of the mindset of repenting of those sins. Part of the repentance process is the acknowledgement, but also the coming to Christ. But we have to come to Christ in the way that God has defined, that we come to Christ. So how do we know if we are really repentant? How do we know what real repentance is? Well, I have a four-part checklist, and as with all of my checklists, it's not all-inclusive, but just something to consider for this time tonight that we would consider it for our lives, we consider it for the lives of others, we would consider it in our means of ministry and how we share the word and how we bring somebody to a decision from Christ. And so I'll look at it from the standpoint of those of us who are born again and the process that we had to go through. 
And I don't want to say process. That's probably not a good term because there's not a list that you have to go through. I know for me, I just saw myself as a sinner. I didn't know what to do with my sins. And I came to this point of repentance. And it wasn't just being a sorry sinner, but coming to Christ and seeing my sins dealt with. I'll get into that a little bit more, what it means. (coughs) So a person who is really repentant, first of all, he acknowledges his sin and he approaches God according to his grace. You must approach God according to his grace because in actuality, it is the only means in which you are able to approach God. And what do I mean by that? You cannot approach God according to your own righteousness or according to your own holiness. God will not be receptive of that because the seeds of that are pride. It's us being emptied of ourselves to understand that I'm a sinner and there's nothing that I can do about it. It's to realize based upon the mercy of God. Remember, mercy is the manifestation of the love displayed upon the cross, knowing that in coming to Christ, I will not receive judgment. Mercy, mercy is the perceived love of God, knowing because God loves me, I'm not going to get what I deserve. In Romans chapter 2, verse 4, or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads us to, it doesn't say salvation, leads us to repentance? We are aware of the love of God, then we understand of the existence of the grace of God. Because as I see the cross and the love that was manifest, as that manifestation of God's love is realized through his mercy, again, not getting what I deserve, I can come before a holy God and understand that I am exposed as a sinner. Take possession of those sins, and God, it's before you and you alone. I have sinned, and Lord, I need you to wash me of my sins. And then that's what opens the door to the grace of God that, well, brings justification into my life or just to be seen just as if I have never sinned. If there is no grace, no mercy, then what do we do? If there's no grace, if there's no mercy, then we're like Adam and Eve hiding in the bushes trying to cover with the fig leaves. And again, there's nowhere in the Bible that tells us for some reason the apple tree got a bad rap in this issue. Um, Nowhere in the Bible does it say the fruit that they partook of was apples. I believe the fruit they partook of were figs. Why do I believe that? Because it says that when they sinned, they covered themselves with fig leaves. And isn't how that, how sin, you know, when you come to the realization of the sinner that you are and the holiness of God, and it just seems like the sin is just plastered all over you. And I can just see, you know, like a little kid who got into the cake in the refrigerator. And he's got chocolate all over his face. Did you get into that cake in the refrigerator? No. Well, he's guilty as all sin right there. And it's the same way with mankind before a holy God. It was the same way with Adam and Eve. And so I must approach God based upon his grace because I have no means other that I am able to approach a holy God. If God was not gracious, then man could not live in his presence. It's only because of the the, uh, grace of God that man is able to exist in the presence of God. 
Romans chapter 8, verse 1, it says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus and do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So look at the other way, looking at this reverse ways. There is condemnation to those who are not in Christ, who walk according to the flesh and not according to the Spirit. And so I have this great hope. We have this great hope, if you're a born-again believer today, that there's no condemnation for us who are in Christ. Why? Because it was never about our merit. It was always about the unconditional love of God, his unmerited favor. Secondly, a really repentant person will have confessed his sinful nature. Now, when I was a Catholic, I was taught... You go to confession every week. Well, we didn't go to confession every week. We went once a month or once every three months. I don't remember how often we went. And so when you go to confession in the Catholic Church, you go into that little booth and you kneel down and you're supposed to say all of your sins. And it's like, really? I got to remember every sin that I... Now, I'd have a hard time remembering all the sins I committed in a week. How much more so in three months? How could I possibly confess? Because the idea, as I confessed these sins, these sins were forgiven me. Well, one of the biggest sins I was committing was going into that confessional and confessing sins that I didn't really commit or, you know, just just making things up. It's not that I was making things up. I couldn't remember. So I was taught, okay, I lied five times. Well, I probably lied 500 times, but who, who can remember? And the thing about it is, if you're going to start going and trying to confess every little sin, you got a big problem. Because there's even going to be the times when you sinned in ignorance. But a sin is still a sin. Remember, a sin is missing God's mark of perfection. And and so if I'm going to hit that bullseye there, either I hit it or I don't. And, And even though I may be trying to hit it and give them my best effort to hit it, you don't get rewards for that. It's either put it on the bullseye or you miss. That's just the way it is. And so as we've all missed the bullseyes, all we've sin- as we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, how in the world can I remember all of those sins? Well, you don't have to remember all the sins. Because what it is it that you are repenting of? You're repenting of your sinful nature. You're, I'm coming before God, and what am I repenting of? I'm not repenting of this and that and all those things. I'm repenting of, Lord, I have sinned before you. We're told in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is to go on record that sin comes from a sinner and not a sinner because he sinned. You're not a sinner because you sin. You sin because you're a sinner. As a matter of fact, we're told in John chapter 3, verses 19 through the, to the end of the chapter, we were condemned already. We, we, were, we were sinners from the womb. That being the case, it's as I come to that realization, I'm admitting to God that I'm among the worst of the worst. Why am I among the worst of the worst? Because I know how I am. I know every sin that I committed. What did Paul call himself? He called himself the chief of all sinners. That's not from the positive standpoint. That's from a very negative standpoint. He's realizing the magnitude of his sins. You should consider yourself to have been the chief of all sinners as well. So I must confess my sin. In actuality, what that means, I must confess my sinful nature. (coughs) The third earmark of a really repented person is that he has made an appeal 
for a cleansing from God. It does no good just to be sorry for your sins or your sinful nature without asking for them to be forgiven. It's it's the repentance, what's referred to as the repentance of Esau. He was sorry, but he never repented before a holy God and asked for forgiveness. If we ask for forgiveness, God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. Judas, he, he, he was a man who was dreadfully sorry to such a degree. Instead of coming to God, he tried to deal with it himself, and the only means by which he could deal with it was hanging himself on a tree. Man cannot deal with his sinful nature. I've got to come to the acknowledgement of my sin, but I must appeal to God as well for forgiveness of these sins because it is only God that is able to forgive sins. I don't want to be a sorry sinner. Matter of fact, I want to be relieved from that mindset. See, I can sin against you, be sorry for it genuinely, but continue to do it. I must ask for a complete forgiveness. In Luke chapter 18, verses 13 through 14, and the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Once again, justified. Although he is a sinner, God now chooses to see him just as if He has never sinned. A complete and thorough forgiveness. Come back to that concept of forgiveness. We all, as human beings, have a difficulty in forgiveness. Even if we come to that point, we have to forgive with the mindset of always remembering. God, when he forgives us, it's a supernatural forgiveness. He chooses to remember our sins no more. And then lastly, a really repentant person, he hungers for a complete renewal. See, there can be nothing done superficially before an all-knowing God as he knows the intents of our hearts. We need to desire a clean heart or a pure heart. Lord, do a work deep down inside of me that changes the person that I am. If any man's in Christ, he's a new creation. And the idea is is that deep cleansing from God has entered in. It's to understand that I'm not going to be a perfect person, but God has caused this change of perspective in my life that as I see As I see all of creation, I understand that it has come from the hands of God. As I realize I'm born again, I understand it has truly come from the hands of God that have been pierced for my benefit. As I walk and move forward in the Lord, I understand that that comes from the Spirit of God. And so this deep renewal, this deep renewal is the difference between the contenders and the pretenders within the body of Christ. God is able to see through all of our facades and he understands and he knows those who are genuinely repented and has been cleansed by him and those who, well, those who may be putting on a show but truly are not. We need that heart transplant that only God is able to perform. In Isaiah chapter 1, verses 16 through 20, it says, "'Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean.'" Put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Rebuke the oppressor. Defend the fatherless. Plead for the widow. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. 
if you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land, but, and there's this word that's going to make all the difference as we're entering into chapter 5, but, but if you refuse and rebel, you shall be devoured by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. They refused, and this is the outward expression of a people who were truly not repentant. Now, as long as we're able to draw breath, we're able to have that opportunity to be so repentant. But here, they're finally coming to the realization. So God, through the prophet Isaiah, he gave them the warning, and he told them, but if you refuse and rebel, you shall be devoured by the sword. Judah, they refused, they rebelled, they were devoured by the sword. United States of America, we're ultimately, in all the world really, we're going to refuse and we are going to be devoured by the sword. It says, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The word of God tells us that these things are so. Now back in Lamentations, we are in the final chapter of our studies through Lamentations, and we will get through chapter 5 here tonight. The past chapters have been in the form of an alphabetic acrostic, with each verse starting with a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. We see that each chapter was 22 verses. There's 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. You would ask, well, what about chapter 3? It's got 66 verses. Well, every third verse started with a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. This was a very methodical means, more than likely for the purpose of memorization. Now, chapter 5 does have 22 verses in it, but it's not an acrostic. And you can ask why, and my, que- my answer to that would be, I don't know, doesn't say. <laughs> Your guess is as good as mine. Matter of fact, it can even seem a little disjointed at times. Does God not want us to memorize that? Well, I don't think that that's what the idea here is. I think it's just a general message of repentance and having hope in God and in the future. And so it's in this last chapter that we're going to see three things. We're going to see an appeal for relief. They're in the midst of that hardship. We're going to see a turning point, and we're going to close with a prayer of hope. Chapter 5, verses 1 through 13, an appeal for relief. Remember, O Lord, what has come upon us. Look and behold our reproach. Our inheritance has been turned over to aliens and our houses to foreigners. We have become orphans and waifs. Our mothers are like widows. We pay for the water we drink and our wood comes at a price. They pursue our heels. We labor and have no rest. We are given our hand to the Egyptians and the Assyrians to be satisfied with bread. Our fathers sinned and are no more, but we bear their iniquities. Servants rule over us. There is none to deliver us from their hand. We get our bread at the risk of our lives because of the sword in the wilderness. Our skin is as hot as an oven because of the fever of famine. They ravished the women in Zion and the maidens in the cities of Judah. Princes were hung up by their hands and elders were not respected. Young men ground at the millstones. Boys staggered under their loads of wood. And so what is this appeal of relief from? Well, the first thing we see in the first three verses is they're crying. They're crying. Again, it's just the realization of what truly has come upon them. 
The cause is the loss of their land, their country, and the helplessness of their people. Remember, O Lord, again, verse 1, what has come upon us, look and behold our reproach, our inheritance. Lord, you have given us these promises of this land and this land forever. And now all of a sudden they're finding themselves in captivity and under the bondage of these foreign nations. And so they've got to be wondering to themselves, as I pointed out quite often, why are we like this? How could this possibly happen? With the promises of God and the graciousness of God, how could this possibly happen? And so they're crying out to the Lord that this mindset, the most vulnerable people of the day, as I pointed out earlier, were widows and orphans, and they're all realizing that they're no better than they. They have no better situation than they. These are the people who were conquerors of King David's day, but now they have become the conquered of their day. They have hit rock bottom, that place where sin leads, and they had to remember they were warned. And again, that's got to be that which touches their hearts real hard. They were warned. God sent prophets. Remember, he sends his word. If man doesn't listen to his word, God raises his voice by sending the prophet kind of get-in-your-face kind of a thing, grab you by the ears so that you would know, that you would know that you would be warned in God's desire that you would change your course or when judgment does come so that you would know why judgment is coming. In Jeremiah chapter 7, verses 5 through 7, for if you thoroughly amend your ways and your doings, if you repent, if you thoroughly execute judgment, now these are fruits of repentance, between a man and his neighbor, if you do not oppress the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, or walk after gods to your hurt, then I will cause you to dwell in this place, in the land that I gave to your fathers forever and ever. So that tells me they didn't do those things. Well, I mean, we know because it's spelled out in the word, but nonetheless, God warned them. In Exodus, before they entered into the land, God warned them. In Exodus chapter 22, verses 22 through 23, you shall not afflict any widow or fatherless child or orphan. If you afflict them in any way and they cry at all to me, I will surely hear their cry. And then he goes on to say, and I will kill you, basically. And what he's saying, I'll take your wife and your kids and put them in that predicament. And again, that's what has happened here. And that's what Judah is coming to the realization of is that we're looking and we see the men who have been killed. We see our leaders have been taken away and they've been slaughtered. The strong, we've seen how our armies have been decimated and it's all that is here where we all feel like widows and orphans, just as helpless as they are. We must remember in these Old Testament studies that the surety of God's judgment, as God said, judgment's going to come and judgment came. For us today, it should be a reminder as well of the reality of his grace. It should be that God will hold himself to his word. He is faithful to his word. And just as he said that judgment's going to come, it's going to come and still judgment will come. But for us who are born again believers, it reminds me that God has forgiven me of my sins. And just as God is faithful to his word when it came to judgment, he's faithful to his word when it comes to our salvation, when it comes to the grace of God as well. Verses four and five, the people appeal for relief because they have been conquered. Verse four, we pay for the water we drink and our wood comes at a price. They pursue at our heels. We labor and have no rest. Chapter four, not to get too political, but it just reminds me of taxation without representation. 
It's those times when we have to pay our taxes, and sometimes it just feels like the government, they've got their hand in your pocketbook. Well, that's what happens here. They're having to pay for the water. It's not the water, that the water is being brought in. It's that, well, why did that nation keep these people? They kept those people for the purpose of taxation. And so these people are being oppressed in that way as well. So what happens when your necessities become scarcities? What happens when the things that you need to live on are that which somebody else has control over and somebody is using them to hold it over you? I mean, just think of the punishment that that is. And really, they're dealing with a plethora of things here. Turn over. We looked at it briefly last week, but in Revelation chapter 6, tells us of the effects of times such as this. And we see how this is played out in war-torn countries. Excuse me, how much more so in end-time events. It says in chapter 6 of the book of Revelation, Now I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice like thunder, Come and see. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out and conquered and to conquer. We know this to be the Antichrist. How did the Antichrist conquer? Well, here there's a bow with no arrows. He more than likely is going to be a schmoozer. He's going to be a good negotiator. And we've seen those. I mean, you see people that have come upon the scene in our political arena. They have absolutely no qualifications or background behind them, but they're elected into office because they have the personality. They just seem to be somebody who will do some good, or they make these great promises that people depend upon, And so what we have here is is the Antichrist in the picture of how he is going to seduce the world. But here's going to be the result, verse 3. Then he opened the second seal, and I heard the second living creature saying, Come and see. And another horse, fiery red, went out, and it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth, and that people should kill one another, and there was given to him a great sword. So basically World War III. Now, what has happened back in Israel, you've got Nebuchadnezzar. Although he did use force, he came in and killed the people by the sword. Verse 5, Then he opened the third seal, and I heard the third living creature saying, Come and see. So I looked, and behold, a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hands. And I heard a voice in the midst of four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius or a day's wages, and three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not harm the oil and the wine. It's something, famine is something quite common in a war-torn country. What happens if our country was invaded? What happens if this country became war-torn, such as we see in Syria? And you've seen the pictures and all the, the rubble that is there. What happens when you go over there to Ralph's or to Stater Brothers or wherever it is that you go, and Ralph's and Stater Brothers isn't there anymore? If you're starving, if you were starving to death, and I went over there to the dairies, and I got a cow, and I gave you a cow, would you even know what to do? I mean, we're so used to having our food handed to it, you wouldn't know where to take the first bite on the cow. (laughs) And it just irritates the cow to chew on it, so it just wouldn't be a very pretty picture. But seriously, there probably wouldn't be any cows left. I mean, what happens when there's no stores? What happens when there's no food What are you going to do then? You'll pay whatever exorbitant prices are asked for. Verse 7, 
Then he opened the fourth seal, and I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come and see. And I looked, and behold, the pale horse, or the idea is kind of a gray horse, and the name of him who sat on it was Death and Hades followed with him, and power was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, with hunger, with death, and by the beast of the earth. So look at that regression, I'll call it. First you have the killing with the sword. You have the wars that exist. And then you have that which happens after. You have death by hunger. There's starvation that is going on. And then there's death by diseases and so on and so forth. And then when we studied the book of Revelation, the last part of verse 8, and the beast of the earth. I looked that up and I did a little bit of a study and, you know, the beast of the earth, you know, bears, lions, and tigers, and all of those things. And it's estimated the amounts of lions, tigers, and bears and these different, what we would consider to be beasts, there's not really enough to cause much of a worldwide concern. Now, I know God can multiply them, but truly what I believe these beasts are, what we see played out during times like that, look at the devastation that rats cause. I mean, a rat is one of the most dangerous beasts that has ever existed on this planet throughout all of history. It's believed that that's where the Black Plague came from, and they caused the death of millions and millions of people in Europe. And again, rats, what do they feed on? They'll feed on dead bodies. They'll feed on pretty much anything. They'll feed on the leftovers of war, and they'll even prevail. They'll grow, and they'll reproduce, and there will be a population explosion. And so we see these results from wars, and it's that which is causing the people to mourn. Thirdly, the people appeal for relief because of a compromising coalition. Verse 6 and 7, We have given our hand to the Egyptians and to the Assyrians to be satisfied with bread. Our fathers sinned and are no more, but we bear their iniquities. Their fathers sinned and they're no more. They, they've gone off and they tried to find relief from these surrounding nations. And now these people, they're still, they're still committing the, basically the same sin. They can't go to Babylon, so they're going to, let's go to, Egypt, let's go to the Assyrians. I mean, that's one of the sins that Abraham committed when he came into the land and almost cost him his wife. In the face of all the miracles that our personal God did for his people and continues to do for his people today, Israel still looked to other nations in their times of need. Who is it that you look for in your time of need? We have a God who is willing to supply to us exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. And the only thing that God ever asked of us is not perfection because we can't deliver, is just simple trust is simply to trust in him and be satisfied with the provision that he gives. Seek first the kingdom of God and all these things, and if you back up from that verse, Matthew 6, all the things that he talks about are all of our needs. All of our needs will be provided to us. We so often allow the presence and power of what we see to overshadow the presence and the power of our holy God who we must see by faith. And that's what Israel was doing. They saw these nations and their strength and their power and their possessions, and they went to them rather than depending upon God, who has got well, a cornucopia of provision for those, again, who trust in him. Israel moved that way when they rejected God as their king, and they lost their way when they looked to the nations for their help. 
Psalm 33, verses 10 through 12, the Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He makes the plans of the people of no effect. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. The people have chosen as his own, the people he has chosen as his own inheritance. Then verses 8 through 13, the people appeal for relief because of the consequences of their actions. Verse 8, servants rule over us. There is none to deliver us from their hand. We get our bread at the risk of our lives because of the sword in the wilderness. That tells me that it's probably lawlessness going on. They risk their lives even going into the forest. Our skin is hot as an oven because of the fever of the famine. They ravish the women in Zion and the maidens in the cities in Judah. Princes are hung by their hands and elders were not respected. Young men ground at the millstones. Boys stagger under the loads of wood. It speaks of the rape of the women of the land. It speaks of the casting aside of the elders and the young men who are being used for slave labor. Proverbs chapter 30 warns us of this situation, verses 21 through 23. It says, For three things the earth is perturbed, yes, for four it cannot bear up. And the first one is for a servant when he reigns. And the idea is these people who used to be the servants of Israel, now Israel is put under servitude of them. And so really, once again, they're getting a picture of how things have turned upside down with the knowledge of why it has happened. It has happened because we have sinned. And then, secondly, we finally come to a turning point, verses 14 through 18. It says, The elders have ceased gathering at the gate and the young men from their music. The joy of our heart has ceased. Our dance has turned into mourning. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. Because, this is our, because of this, our heart is faint. Because of these things, our eyes grow dim. Because of Mount Zion, which is desolate, with foxes walking about on it. Their turning point, their turning point is, is the acknowledge that this has all happened because we have turned our heart from the Lord. This should be our... Uh, this should be our motivation in this nation today. It should be our motivation as we see the nation and the direction that it is heading. How, again, if somebody's looking at this nation, third party, without really ever realizing history and, and even a relationship with God, just seeing, well, what, what's the worst segment of this society? Well, the way the nation treats it, it would be the Christians. It would be the born-again believers. And, and this should cause grief to well up within our hearts that we would repent that I would repent, that we would repent of our deeds and understanding that it's so desirous to have purity of heart before a holy God to be able to move forward and, and maybe God will relent. Maybe God will relent of the judgment that's sure to come upon this nation because the things that we're doing are the things that they were doing and we see the judgment that come upon them when they did those things. So surely judgment is coming upon this nation. And just maybe, maybe there's going to be one more revival you can read the history books, even of Calvary Chapel, and in the 60s and how people were just flocking to the Lord Jesus Christ. There was kind of a revving up of that revival again in the, in the early 90s when churches were growing once again. And our prayer needs to be that that would happen once more, that there would be a turning of men and women's hearts from the world and from their flesh to our holy God, and we would see God be gracious and be merciful. 
the psalmist, he came to the same realization in David's great psalm of repentance in Psalm 51, verses 3 and 4. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done this great evil in your sight that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Israel here in Lamentations is finally recognizing these things and headed in a better direction. And then lastly, we close our study in the book of Lamentations with this prayer of hope, verses 19 through 22. You, O Lord, remain forever. You're thrown from generation to generation. Why do you forget us forever and forsake us for so long time? Turn us back to you, O Lord, and we will be restored. Renew our days of old unless you have utterly rejected us. Well, God told them and God has told us, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He will turn his face from us from time to time in order to get our attention, in order to bring us back to the state of repentance and where it is that we need to be. But our prayer is, turn us back to you, O Lord, and we will be restored. Understanding that as we come back into this right relationship with God, God comes back into this right relationship with us. Remember what Zacharias says, Return to me, start over with me, God says, and I'll start over with you. There's always that opportunity. As dark as our nation gets, and it seems to be at times, there's always the opportunity for repentance and to get back right with him. You know, when I read about in Revelation, that nation, that, I'm sorry, that angel went, that went around preaching the gospel, that angel, the word angel means messenger. We are God's angel to deliver this message of the gospel to this nation who is perishing today, that maybe, just maybe, God would relent and they would find eternal life. Father, I pray, Lord, that you would give us just this heart, Lord, this heart of passion, Father. It's so easy to point fingers and be part of those who are raging against those on the left or those on the right and those are doing this and doing that. And Lord, so many times the church gets caught up in pointing out sin, And that's not what we've been called to do. We've been called to preach the word. We've been called to live the truth. God, it's you who point out the sins. Lord, nobody in my life told me that I needed to stop sinning before I could come to you. It's as I came to you that the sins started to be stripped away. But again, as nobody could be perfect and come to you, you take us just as we are, just where we are. And so, Father, as you had done that, Lord, it was a great moment of the day of our salvation. And I just pray, Father, for us who will avoid that final judgment, that, God, we would be motivated because of this great love, because it's the good, your goodness that led us to repentance, that, Father, we would exhibit that goodness to all who we come in contact with. And, Lord, you would use that to bring them to a spirit of repentance and right standing with you. We see the cry of these people's heart that are in that quagmire of their sin. Father, far be it from us that we would allow things to be reduced to that, that, Lord, once again, as you are faithful to your word, that, Lord, I pray we would always be faithful to you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you all stand, please? 
Once again, we're going to be having, or we are having a men's breakfast, not here at our church, but at Calvary Chapel, Chino Valley. Um, It's going to be Pastor David teaching it, as well as Pastor Randy from Calvary Chapel Upland, and I'll be there teaching as well. Uh, Just the three of us, people have, Pastor David from Chino Valley, Randy and I both have come out from Calvary Chapel, Chino Valley. It's a men's breakfast, and I just think it's going to be a blessed time, and I strongly encourage you to sign up. You can sign up at Calvary Chapel, Chino Valley's website or at our information table. You can sign up here at least until the 12th. Um, Oh, and our men's retreat. Our men's retreat is coming up. It's at the end of the month. If you're coming with us, you need to get signed up. God bless you guys. Have a great end of the week. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, your perfect love is casting out fear. Even when I'm caught in the middle of the storms of this life, I won't turn back, I know you are near. I will fear no evil. For my God is with me, and if my God is with me, whom then shall I fear, whom then shall I fear? Oh no, you never let go through the calm and through the storm. Oh no, you never let go in every high every low oh no you never let go lord you never let go of me i can see a light that is coming for the heart that holds on a glorious light beyond all compare there will be an end to these troubles but until that day comes will live to know you here on the earth i will fear no evil for my god is with me and if my god is with me whom then shall i fear whom then shall i fear Oh no, you never let go through the calm and through the storm. Oh no, you never let go in every high, every low. Oh no, you never let go, Lord, you never let go of me. I can see a light that is coming for the heart that holds on. There will be an end to these troubles but until that day comes still i will praise you still i will praise you oh no you never let go through the calm and through the storm oh no you never let go in every high every low Oh, no, you never let go, Lord, you never let go of me.
good night. God bless you guys. Have a wonderful evening. We anticipate the next time we get together. God bless you.